Today's episode of Your Stories is sponsored by Backblaze Online Backup, a simple way to backup all your movies, photos, music, videos, and all the data on your Mac or PC for just $5 a month. It's simple, and you can access all your data online from wherever you are. Start your 15-day trial absolutely free by going to backblaze.com slash cpc. That's B-A-C-K-B-L-A-Z-E dot com slash c-p-c. Thank you very much. Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. everybody. I'm Eric Arnaud, and this is the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast. Happy Labor Day! We're here this week with our recording from last Monday's show at the Beat Kitchen as part of the Chicago Podcast Festival's Showcast series. We were honored to be asked and had a wonderful time celebrating the release of a new podcast with the creative team as well as some of our favorite performers. This week, you'll hear from Katie Johnston-Smith, Zach Mast, James Gordon, Sean Rose, Chris Geiger, and myself, and you'll get music from me and Katie as well. Now, Sean and Chris, by the way, are two of the co-creators of the new podcast, Batman at Bat, a show that combines the golden ages of radio and comics into one lighthearted celebration of both, as Batman and his friends play a twisted game of baseball against Joker and the Rogues. It's a total delight of a show the nerds were proud to co-produce. You can hear the first three episodes now at batmanatbat.com, nerdalogs.com, or on Apple Podcasts. Uh, and new innings release each Wednesday until the game is over. Now, appropriately, the theme of this episode of Your Stories is also at bat. And you'll get some great sports and Batman-inspired pieces this week to entertain you and to make you think. So everyone, please enjoy your holiday and some sweet, sweet Nerdalogs content while you're at it. And we'll see you next week. Some songs that uh, are about uh, baseball, or we made them fit being about baseball. They're all, it's all the national anthem three times. (laughs) Yes, that's true. Hope you're ready. Put your hands over your hearts now. All right. I'm not even going to try the intro. This is a pretty obvious. Again. 
when there's new grass on the field. Very high-minded lyrics in this song. Round, round and third, headed for home. It's a brown-eyed, handsome man. Okay. Anyone can understand the way I feel. The Pizza Hut commercial song, I think. Put me in, coach. I'm ready to play today. Put me in, coach. I'm ready to play today. Santa Field. I played right field. In a softball league in Lansing, Illinois that never got off the ground. Well, I spent some time in the month of nine watching from the bench. You know, I took some nuns when the mighty case struck out. So say, hey, Willie, tell Ty Cobb and Joe DeMar. Better or worse without CCR? <laughs> All right. Got a beat up glove, a homemade bat, a brand new pair of shoes. You know, I think it's time to give this game a ride. What game? Just hit the ball and touch them all. A moment's in the sun. make the song sensual now, but that's not what it's about. Santa Field. What do you... Yes! Classic. Um, this next song is like super sensual and also a hot stadium anthem. Um... I went down to drop D, which as you know is the most metal of all tunings. Most... Except for like no. dropped B, but we're not playing seven dust up here. Right. Also, Eric and I would like to dedicate this to all of our enemies. I don't have any enemies, so Katie said she'd give me some of hers. I got several. <laughs> <laughs> don't get an article written about me, please. <laughs> don't be pervert. Easier said than done. army couldn't hold me back they're gonna rip it off I'm taking their time right behind my back and I'm talking to myself 
single one's got a story to tell Everyone knows about it From the Queen of England to the Hounds of Hell And I catch you coming back my way I'm gonna serve it to you And that ain't what you want to hear But that's what I'll do from my six awesome performers tonight and then we're going to preview our new show and Katie's going to be first and I have a feeling that Katie's going to tell you why we just sang Jack White. Is that true, Katie? Maybe. Are you going to set up how much you love Jack White? It's part of the story. Okay, great. So I'm not going to spoil anything. I'm just going to turn the stage over to Katie Johnston-Smith. Um, Yeah, hello. I'm Katie Johnston-Smith. Some fun things about Jack White are that he's great. He also um, is the co-owner of a baseball bat company called Warstick, and I'm wearing their shirt. Um, So everything that I say next is relevant. Um, Cool. (laughs) If how I feel about Jack White is how people feel about religion, then I think I finally get it. About four years ago, the themes in Jack White's songs started resonating with me while I was going through a divorce and being scapegoated as the Chicago comedy scene's Monica Lewinsky. Um, His music put words to the pain I felt and helped me fight some pretty tenacious inner demons. To be specific, the song Love Interruption from his album Blunderbuss has this really beautiful verse-chorus combo that goes like this. And I want love to change my friends to enemies. See, enemies. Change my friends to enemies. Show me how it's all my fault. And I won't let love disrupt, corrupt, or interrupt me anymore. Yeah, so that's really, like, cool and beautiful. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Um, And at that time in my life, it was comforting to have a soundtrack to which I could replay my mistakes and help me redefine both platonic and romantic love. His music also helps me understand my own struggle for independence. I grew up pretty religious, and while I shed the religion of my parents when I went to college, 
I still had this mentality ingrained in me that there's this like set path that involved getting married to the person I was dating my senior year of college, so that's what I did. I didn't realize um, I was setting myself up to feel trapped because I'd never really known life without a cage. And when I finally exploded myself out of my marriage and forced myself to discover who I am on my own, Jack White's song, Freedom at 21, really empowered me. Specifically, this phrase, um, and she don't care the kind of things people used to do, and she don't care what she does has an effect on you. She's got freedom in the 21st century. These lyrics gave me something a religious text never could. Raw emotion wrapped up in language that like truly saw me for who I was, where I was. The lyrics gave me something I could use to work through my pain rather than shove it down. And I think most importantly, they helped me realize that I'm allowed to boldly make my mistakes, discover myself, demand respect, and not be called a slut for acting the exact same way as a man. About two years after this really traumatic time period, um, my partner and I, who had been together for a bit, decided to get married. It was a very quiet ceremony we only told our officiants about, and it was special and sweet, and I'm glad we did it that way because it felt authentic. The night we got married, we had already planned to go see a show at a hotel downtown, and after the show, we were hanging out in the hotel bar, and my new husband was like smiling and nodding at someone. Um, and I was like, who are you smiling and nodding at? And he was like, oh, that's Jack White. <laughs> so of course I like followed a World Series weary Cubs gear wearing Jack White around the hotel bar for a moment before realizing if I am ever going to meet him, this is not how I want it to happen. I was drunk, I was, it was Halloween, I was dressed as Rilo Kylie Wren, which is like exactly what it sounds like. It's Kylo Wren and Jenny Lewis. Um, also, uh, it's important to meet celebrities, especially your heroes, on their own terms. I do feel like seeing Jack White on the night of my wedding was kind of, in a way, my religious deity blessing my union, which is better than saying, oh, on my wedding night, I freaked out Jack White and now I hate his music forever. Like, Honestly, I do not think I could recover from that. Uh, <laughs> within the past month, I've seen Jack White play live twice. Both times were these like electric experiences where I was close enough to the stage to look him in the eyes and see him connect with the words and melodies I hold so close to my heart. And I like honestly, I f truly feel lucky to exist in the same timeline as this legend. Don't laugh at me, Eric. <laughs> okay. And if I do ever get to meet him on his terms, I hope I will be able to bring myself to thank him for his music and tell him that it changed my life. Thank you. Thank you, Katie Johnson Smith. So Jack White's baseball uh, bat company, their name is Warstick. Now, I'm not a big sports person. Can someone who knows, Chris Geiger, is that what baseball players call their bats? Do they say, I'm going to grab my war stick and, and beat this ball? Is, yeah? Confirmed. 
<laughs> All right. War sticks are in. Baseball bats are out. So we have three people here who are going to tell stories from the forthcoming uh, podcast that we are premiering tonight. One of those gentlemen you can also see at the New York City Fringe in a few weeks, uh, appearing in this one-man show as Steve Bannon. Do you guys remember who that is? He's kind of horrible, but this guy's not. Please welcome to the stage Mr. Zach Mast. Hi, everybody. Um, oh, yeah, I should just do a call and response. Uh, so like most people inclined to write a piece for a live storytelling podcast, I was never too good at sports. Um, when I was a kid, I liked to run and play, but once running and playing became organized in any way, it became a sport, and thus it was no longer for me. Mind you, I like sports. I like watching baseball, especially in October when the stakes are high. And I follow football closely enough to dedicate every Sunday to feeling like shit. I thought LeBron was cool even in Miami. But I could never play sports myself. Not well, anyway. I suspect my parents knew this right away. Every year, my elementary school handed out registration forms for extracurricular sports. And around second grade, I took home the blue form for football and handed it to my dad to fill out. He raised an eyebrow. You play football? He slid the form into the kitchen table, and we never spoke about it again. <laughs> when I got to seventh grade, I decided to take my sports career into my own hands and join track and field. I've never had much in the way of physical strength, but I was always fast. I could sprint. And if anything, it was something to do after school besides jerking off and playing video games. But those are topics for separate essays. <clears throat> My track career sure wasn't going to win me any trophies. I won a race in the 75-meter dash, but later realized I wasn't even assigned to a competitive heat. I ran the 800 meters and was proud of myself when I sprinted the final quarter track to a respectable finish, but I could barely breathe afterward, and my whole torso hurt, and my quivering legs could barely keep me upright. And so it was that I learned that your body needs to drink at least some water when you engage in physical activity. <laughs> for the field event, I chose the high jump. I worked hard to get the approach and form down for the Fosbury flop, and eventually I could execute the proper technique to clear the bar in a single smooth twisting motion. During a meet, I managed to set a personal best, three feet, 11 inches. When the boy right after me a post-pubescent mutant who at 12 was already pushing six feet tall simply scissor-kicked over the same bar. <laughs> in eighth grade, some friends convinced me to join the volleyball team. Unlike track, in which I was free to pursue my own individual failures, somehow, suddenly now I had to fail as part of a team. And boy, did I stink. I couldn't serve. Couldn't hit. If I tried to pass, my bony arm sent the ball flying out of bounds. This wasn't a problem in middle school volleyball, where everyone gets a chance to play, but it was when I went out for junior varsity in ninth grade. The season began with a training camp a few weeks before the school year started, at which point I already knew that the volleyball coach was also going to be my social studies teacher. This seemed like a good way to get to know him, or it would have been if I wasn't dead weight in every practice. <laughs> After only three days, he pulled me aside, mustered a sympathetic frown, and said, I'm going to have to let you go. 
I got cut from the JV volleyball team before the season even started. And then I had to have the coaching class. I was a good student, so I tried to ignore our past and focus on history. But eventually I had to address the Hannibal's elephant in the room and approached him after class. Why did you cut me? I asked, frankly. Mr. Belanca sighed. Look, Zach, I'll just say it. Coach Belanca threw up his hands. You sucked! <laughs> Fair enough. The next spring, I had the final run of my career as an athlete. I decided to try out for JV tennis, whose coach happened to also be my science teacher. This time, there were no cuts, but that didn't mean they couldn't find a way to keep me off the team. I couldn't even crack the ranks of fourth doubles, and for most competitions, I spent the entire time off the court, watching my teammates through the empty spaces of the chain-link fencing that surrounded the court. If one of the official matches happened to end with time to spare, coach assured me he'd get me in to play in a match that didn't affect the score sheet. One week, my opportunity came, and they matched me up with the corresponding misfit from the opposing school. Even in what must have been one of the worst games of tennis ever played, by anyone, on both sides, that scrub kicked my ass. <laughs> At the final meeting of the season, while all the matches that mattered were happening on the courts, Coach Lippmann pulled me aside and put his hand on my shoulder. I knew Lippmann had a fondness for me from a year's worth of class, and I had the sense that he wanted to make me feel better to assuage some of the humiliation that no doubt comes from being so dang shitty at sports. Zach, you see those guys, he started, gesturing at my teammates on the active courts. They've got a lot of athletic ability. Sure, they can hit a ball. But you, you've got heart. I stared at him playing years of athletic failures over in my head, and thought with sudden clarity, are you fucking kidding me? You're giving me the hard speech? I looked down at my racket and picked at the strings while he finished reassuring his own sense of decency. I smiled and thanked him for the kind words. Then I walked home. We never spoke about it again and my heart never felt so free. Thank you. Zach Mess, everybody. Doesn't he have a lot of heart? <laughs> Give it up for, it up for Zach. Oh, my God. Definite flashbacks for me, my friend, as someone who tried to take lessons in golf and tennis and basically all the sports that weren't, like, super uh, run-intensive. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, not, not great on my front either. So coming up next to the stage, I mentioned earlier that we are spotlighting a podcast that has to do with both baseball and Batman. So I couldn't not book a gentleman with this name. So the fella coming to the stage, he is an international award-winning author and poet, as well as a champion storyteller. He's won the Moth Grand Slam once. He's about to take on a couple more, which is really exciting. So getting those reps in. Uh, you might have seen him on an episode of Chicago Fire as Andy the Barber, a.k.a. the Southside Butcher. But you are safe tonight. Please welcome, I swear this is real, James Gordon.
the precursor, the precursor of things to come. And I know the current champion in Chicago is watching because that's what he does. So just in case you are a little man, I'm coming. Um, I got a self shameless plug. I just brought out a book of poetry called Beloved. I got copies. Y'all need to buy one as soon as I get done. I got other stuff as well, so let's get to it. I opened up the email and it said Moth Story Slam. Congratulations, champ. You and nine other Story Slam champions will go into the Grand Slam on November 2nd, 2016. The date was actually irrelevant because I had seen this particular email three times previous. And with some trepidation, I wasn't sure what my answer was going to be. Because the three times previous, I had answered the affirmative, yes, yes, yes. And it failed in my attempt to win each of three times. And my prevailing thought was, I am not going to be the Buffalo Bills. For those of you who don't know, the Buffalo Bills were extremely dominant in the 90s. They led the league in scoring and offense, and they were good enough to run through the AFC, but each time they got to the Super Bowl, especially number one, when Scott Norwood hit the field goal left, and it's just been disaster for the next three Super Bowls afterwards. I did not want to be the Buffalo Bills, and I sat there, looked at the email, and gave the affirmative, yes, I will be there. I prepped for the theme, which was out of bounds, and I had the perfect story, so I thought. And one thing you had to consider was who else was in the Grand Slam, and the reigning champion, who had won twice previous, was in there. I had held the Story Slam edge over him, but when it came to the Grand Slams, I was 0-2. And he was primed and ready for a third one. I didn't know if I could stop him. November 2nd was the day, and coincidentally, the Cubs, our Chicago Cubs, who had been down 3-1, to one, had crawled back into the World Series against the Cleveland Indians and tied it up 3-3, three to three, and Game 7 was the same night. So while, some, while most people were sitting in there listening to the stories, they were looking at their phones watching the score as well. I picked number six, a great number to pick. You never want to pick number one, it's one through five, and then there's a break, and the six, and the judges have usually loosened up, had a couple of drinks, and then you can score better in the second half. So I was right where I needed to be. <laughs> but the order had the reigning champion right behind me, and also another storytelling friend of mine right behind him. And my mind was that somehow or another, I can get past those two, I would have it. Or, as a consolation, if I could just beat the reigning champion, that would be fine. But damn, I didn't want to be the Buffalo Bills. <laughs> the first five stories went and it, it, they dragged a little bit and the guy in the lead, his score wasn't as high as it should have been and I knew if I could just score high enough, I could do it and they called my name, it was my turn and I came out with my normal flair, Ric Flair. <laughs> okay, right, yeah. And I came out and I delivered the story and the story was about when I was a teacher and I saw another teacher punch a student and I, and I had to choose between getting tenure or turning this teacher in. And of course I turned the teacher in, rousing applause and they gave out my scores, 9.7, 9.6, 9.0. I had taken a commanding lead with the reigning champion coming behind me. He took the stage and I, 
And I sat there tapping my feet nervously, which I normally don't do, but I said, I just have to get past him. And he stuttered and stammered through his story. It wasn't as crisp as it normally was. And I said, oh shit, I got a shot. <laughs> At this time, the Cubs were up five to one, cruising to a World Series assured comeback three to one victory. The crowd was jubilant, and the reigning champion had gotten two eights, and oh my God, I was still leading. My friend came next, and her story, I knew exactly what it was gonna be, because she had told me the story. Actually, I lived the story with her, and her story was about, we, she lived across from a couple, and they were really loud and arguing, and she ran over and I ran over with her because we were having pancakes and they were, we thought she was being abused and we ran on there and I knew the story and I said, shit, I know how good this story is. How am I gonna get past this? And she was carrying the crowd. You've seen it when someone owns the crowd and then the bottom just fell out and she had a couple of eights too and going into the ninth storyteller, I was still leading. The Cubs, however, had let the Cleveland Indians come back, and now it was five to five. The ninth storyteller really wasn't a factor, and <laughs> it wasn't. I had the scouting report, he wasn't. And now I went into number 10, leading. The reigning champion, who would soon not be the champion, leans over and says, hey, I don't mean to tell you this, but the next guy coming up, he was 10th when I was leading, and he came back and he won. But also, you've seen him before. I said, yeah. He says, have you ever watched Big Brother? I said, yeah, I love the show. He said, that's Andy Heron. I said, oh, shit. Are you serious? The winner of Big Brother's here tonight? I didn't even know. He wasn't on the scouting report. <laughs> he takes the stage, and he is hilarious. From the first minute to the fifth minute, because you get five minutes up to six. And he was hilarious. And I just, I saw it whittling away. But at the conclusion, he flubbed it. He had no ending. He couldn't close. And I sat there, my eyes growing really big, and I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> and his scores came. 9.2, 8.9, 8.8. And they said, will all the storytellers please come to the stage? And I sat while everybody else moved. And then it hit me. I was the champ. To which I said loudly, oh shit, I'm the champ! <laughs> I, I lifted up my belt and I was like, oh, because I carry this motherfucker with me. Because I'm arrogant like that. And I took the stage and I gave my speech and people were fouling out because the Cubs were in extra innings and they would wind up winning their World Series. And it's fitting. They hadn't won in Lord knows how many decades. 
and I won my first. And I would never be the Buffalo Bills. <laughs> Thank you. James Gordon, everybody, give it up. So, two things. I've never seen anyone cut a promo on our show before. That was awesome. I hope whoever's scouting you is afraid for their lives, James. Better take that. Uh, second, <laughs> did, uh, Zach, did you mention where you're from in your story? I don't think you did, did you? No, I almost wrote about how I'm a Bills fan in this essay. <laughs> Zach is from Buffalo, so that was, uh, that was pretty perfect. Sorry, buddy. Your day will come. <laughs> so... Anyway, moving right along, uh, this next gentleman is a writer and artist as well as a co-writer of the forthcoming Batman at Bat. I don't know if I said the title. That's the title. You're going to hear from him right now. Please welcome to the stage, Mr. Sean Rose. Hello. This is the. I just want to say uh, I'm sorry that when you mentioned uh, Ric Flair, I didn't do a woo, and I would. I feel like that was the moment to do it. You're supposed to do the woo when it's a Rick thing. Woo! Yeah, there you go. There you go. Eric, I've, okay, this is, you did Center Field. Was that the song where the, the fantasy records, the record label sued John Fogarty for it sounding too much like a CCR song? Because I feel like that happened. I could be wrong. I don't know what song, but that definitely did happen. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, the music industry is ridiculous. Uh, thank you, thank you, everybody. So that, uh, uh, the theme is that bad, uh, talking about baseball, talking about, uh, you know, the Bills and, and loser teams and, and all of this. I'm sorry, Zach. Zach, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Zach. Don't worry, you're going to feel this is, you know. Yeah, listen, it's all right. This is where all, we're, all get, we're getting this all out here. Uh, you know, I really love baseball. I also think baseball is uh, a terrible nightmare. Uh, I think it's cruel and, and mean. I think it's, a, it's horrifying <laughs> and terrifying. Uh, a lot of people say that baseball you know, is boring, like if, you, if you're not like a fan of it. Uh, if you are someone who thinks that baseball is boring, I honestly envy you, because that means that you don't love a baseball team. You don't have that curse of loving a baseball team. Uh, and if you do, I think you know what I'm talking about. Uh, you know that it's this, this anxiety-written just nightmare. Like if you have a baseball team that like gets into the playoffs and gets into the World Series, it's just like a, a nightmare. It just, it just plays with your emotions and your anxieties uh, to the point where it's, it's like trying to destroy you. Like there's something about baseball where like it's so like drawn out and it's so tense and it just feels like everything. Uh, and you know, it, it gives you, you know, a glimmer of hope only to snatch it away from you at the last minute. That's what baseball is all about. Uh, so I'm a Mets fan. I'm a New York Mets fan. <laughs> so you might have guessed uh, from the way I just described it, I'm kind of tying into the Buffalo Bills here. Uh, I grew up a Mets fan. Uh, so I know about this. Uh, my mom has been a New York Mets fan since the team started in 1962. So uh, the, the roots run... Pretty deep. Uh, my grandpa was a big Brooklyn Dodgers fan, and then they left, and the Mets were kind of like the spiritual. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So my mom uh, loved the Mets. Uh, you know, I, so the Mets are very strongly tied to my family and my mom, and, and uh, who I love very much. Uh, to you know, watching games with my mom, her telling me stories about how the, you know 
the Mets winning the World Series in 1969 and how exciting that was because they were in last place for so long and then all of a sudden they won. And uh, she was there. She was at the World Series in 73. She saw them win the World Series in 86. So it's, it, it, it runs deep. Uh, all of that's very close to my heart. Uh, I was born loving the Mets. I'm tied to them, win or lose, which mostly lose. Um, if you know about the Mets, I've been feeling like I've been, I have a direct connection with them, with my family, and so it's just, just constant disappointment. Um, you know, uh, that, now there's other teams that have had it way worse than the Mets. You know, obviously the Cubs did for a very long time uh, until just a couple of years ago. Uh, the Mets are like, they won the World Series in 86. It wasn't that long, like it was a while ago, but not that long ago. Uh, so they're kind of the worst kind of loser team where they're just kind of like a milk toast loser. Like they're just kind of disappointing. Um, you know, they, they don't have like a curse, right? Like they don't have something where it's like, ah, you know, this happened, uh, there was like a goat or something years ago and ah, they just can't catch a break. It's like, they just, they just kind of stink. Um, and they show promise, like they have these periods of time where they just, they really, really seems like they're getting there. Uh, and then they just blow it. Uh, you know, they just, they, they really like, that, that's just what the Mets do. Uh, but I was, see, I was born in 1987. So I've never actually been alive for the Mets to win a World Series. Like it just, they won right before I was born. Uh, but I've, I've seen them some, come close very, very often. Uh, the worst experience I had, it was in 2000, it was the Mets Yankees World Series. It was a Subway Series. And, uh, right. And, uh, you know, my love of the Mets was only matched by my hatred of the Yankees. I hated the Yankees. Thank you. Hated the Yankees so much. Ugh. Ugh. And they were so good then. Like, they were the best. Nobody could stop the Yankees in 2000. They had swept, like, two World Series, I think, like, th two or three World Series straight, right? Like, they were just, you know... Yeah, they were fight, exactly. Yeah, they were just, it was, it was hopeless. So I, but I was like, no, the Mets are going to do it. The Mets are going to be the underdogs. You cheer for the underdogs, right? And I'm like, uh, the Mets are going to, the Mets are going to do it. They're going to break the streak. And so, and I grew up in, in Connecticut, which doesn't, you know, they don't have their own baseball team. So all my friends were Yankees fans, all of them. So they were all just like, you know, Mets are going to lose. Every day I come into school and they be like, Mets are going to lose, Mets are going to lose. I'm like, no, no, they're not. It strengthened my resolve. No. They're gonna win. It didn't. Uh, didn't. They didn't win the games. Um, and you know they didn't. They didn't win and they didn't lose in even like an, in, an interesting way. They lost like the first two games by like a run, and then they won a game. So they give you like a little bit of hope. I'm like, hooray, finally! And then they lose the last two by like a run or two. I'm like, come on! Like they didn't even get. They didn't get swept. Oh, good. They didn't get swept. They didn't, it wasn't a blowout. It wasn't like a oh, poor Mets. It was just like, fuck you, win, you idiots. Uh, so that, that kind of gives you an impression of, uh, you know, just that they lost in the blandest and saddest way that you can lose. And I was just so distraught. I, you know, I cried into my Mets pillow, which, which I had. I had a Mets pillow. I had like a notebook that I would like put in like little drawings of like, the Mets are gonna win. I threw it, I threw it out. It was sad, it was very sad. Uh, so since that happened, I've just, I've, I feel like I keep seeing other teams just do what the Mets couldn't do. Like the Diamondbacks beat the Yankees in seven games in the World Series immediately after that one. And so I was just like, yeah, great. And then in 2004, the Red Sox 
embarrassingly beat the Yankees. Uh, they were down three games in the ALCS, and then they just took the, like, the next four games. Which, by the way, uh, I, a friend of mine who is a Boston fan uh, credits me for doing that, because I started doing a thing where, <laughs> slight aside, I would not watch the end of each game, and then the Red Sox kept winning. So he told me to keep doing that for every single game, and I did, and the Red Sox kept winning. So if anyone's a Red Sox fan, you can thank me after the show. I'm, it was me. I did it, 100%, only me and nobody else. Um, uh, and it was, that, was, that was great, but it was also, uh, it was very taxing. So I kind of stayed away from baseball for a long time. Uh, you know, and I, over the years, I kind of thought like, you know, this is mellowed out. I'm not, I'm not as intense about the Mets anymore. I'm not intense about baseball anymore. This is not a thing. But then 2015 rolls along. Mets are in the World Series again. Uh, they swept the Cubs to, to win, the, which is worthless in retrospect. Uh, because, uh, it, but, but my, I thought it was done, right? But it, it was not done. Like I would check the score like obsessively and I would like, I, you know, my superstition, superstitions just went crazy and I started, you know, just checking it and going to bed without watching the end of the game, like thinking that would help. And uh, so they lost the first two games and then they won one and then they lost the last two. <laughs> they did it again. The Mets, baby. Gotta love them. Uh, so yeah, and it just, it hurts so much and I realized like this is still a, this is still a thing. So, so if I'm being honest, I don't know if I ever want the Mets to, to even get close to the, <laughs> they should probably just shut the team down. Um, it's not even in this, I'm just saying that off the cuff. Hey, just shut them down, let's, let's stop, let's end this charade. Uh, I mean, like, the Cubs winning in, in 2016 was, like, the fulfillment of, like, everything I wanted as, like, a baseball fan. It was, like, this big, joyous thing. I was here in Chicago with everyone in, in Lakeview and like, high-fiving everyone on the street, and everyone was so excited. It was so great. Uh, but, you know, I, do I need the Mets to win again? Do I need that? <laughs> but, you know, part of, me, part of me still kind of wants it. For my mom, I think. A little shred of hope. I still have that little shred of hope. You know, that they're gonna win. Anyway, that's all. That's all for me. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sean Rose. So that Mets pillow you have is that like a like a body pillow, like a full size pillow? Just curious. Oh, well, I just made that gross on accident. Oops. Uh, guys, we have two storytellers left before our podcast preview. I'm going to be one of them. Uh, if you're friends with me on Facebook, you might have seen uh, today I announced my retirement. I've only got about four or five shows of this left, and I'm going to pass the baton. Don't boo. Um, I've been doing this a long time, and I feel like it's time for some new blood, but I want to get out some stories of my own before I go. So this is a version of a story I have told a bunch at Nerdalogs live shows, but we never recorded it. But it has a new spin because you know what? We grow and change as people. So, yeah. So I'm going to read you three things tonight. One is from a book written by a very smart man. One is something that I wrote, and one was written by an angry man on the internet. But twist, maybe I was the angry man on the internet. Let's go on this journey together. So this book is called I Wear the Black Hat. It's by Chuck Klosterman. It's a book about villainy. And he has a chapter in here uh, comparing 
Batman, so I took the Batman part of tonight's theme, to Bernie Getz and wondering why we revere Batman and hate Bernie Getz. Maybe it's an obvious question, but sometimes those are the most fun to dive into. Now, if you don't know uh, Bernie Getz, you may be familiar with him from the lyrics of We Didn't Start the Fire, AIDS Crack Bernie Getz, that places him squarely in the 80s, that is true. So Bernie Getz is a, a kind of a shitty man who, in on the New York subway around Christmas 1984, uh, he is a white man and he shot four black teens who he claimed were trying to mug him and kind of like you could imagine it happening today that ignited a huge debate about urban justice and, and racial tension in the city and violence and etc and for a while people really really liked Bernie Getz uh, which maybe is different from how things would happen today like the the media was agog with Bernie Getz um, for shooting at four black teenagers on the subway but then things started to change so here's where we pick up with Chuck he says uh, then Getz became real. He was not merely a problem of democracy. He was a thin man in a leather jacket without remorse. And from the moment that, transformed, that transformation happened, people started to turn on him. They could just tell he was weird. That, I realize, is an oversimplification. It wasn't like the world saw Getz's angular face and instantly decided to hate him. The fact that he wasn't handsome didn't help his cause, but that wasn't what marginalized him. He theoretically could have used it to his public advantage had he portrayed himself as an altruistic nerd. He had a traumatic encounter to balance his aggression. In 1981, Getz was injured when three teenagers mugged him in the subway, and a scarred personal history that could have justified his twisted intensity. When he was 12, Getz's father pleaded guilty to molestation charges. Had Bernie Getz somehow managed to limit the public's understanding of his life to those two particulars, it's possible he would have remained a folk hero forever. What he should have said to the world is this. I know how it feels to be scared, and I know how it feels to be hurt, and I didn't want anyone else to have those feelings just because they were out in public. If he could have, that was my Batman voice. <laughs> if he could have contained the public understanding of his persona, if he could have painted the subway shooting and his own personal trauma as a one-to-one -one relationship, and if he'd convincingly insisted it was done for the benefit of random strangers, he likely would have become a superhero. Civilized society would have still expressed abstract distaste for the vigilante theory, but it could have embraced the lone vigilante who risked his own life for the lives of others, just as we do with Batman. But here's the thing, Batman is cool, and more important, Batman is fake. He can't be investigated by reporters. Nobody from the New York Times is going to find out that Batman once referenced, and then I'm not going to say the words Bernie used, but they're two very strong racial slurs. At a community watch meeting, Batman can't negatively agree to talk with a journalist and carelessly outline his personal politics, only to see his words reduced and recast as empathy-free arrogance. Because he is unreal, Batman controls the Batman message. So let's talk about controlling the message. So in the between time for my employment, between running a comic book store and managing one, I've led a very interesting life, you guys can tell. Um, I, I worked as a uh, freelance blogger, mostly for, because uh, I was trying to use my English degree, what a fool I was, uh, mostly for an education site that paid, but I was also trying to do uh, criticism, because at the time I thought my ultimate aspiration was working for the AV club. And so one day, I came to write a review of a comic, uh, Batman and Robin, number 19. Uh, this comic had art by Mr. Scott McDaniel, who I've never been a fan of. And in writing about this comic, I said these words. Let's start with the art. And by the way, guys, I know how this is going to sound. Let's start with the art. 
It seems like it ought to be a generally accepted truth that Scott McDaniel is just not a good artist. Batman and Robin is probably the least offensive work I've ever seen from him, but that's not saying much. McDaniel practices that sloppy, broad style of drawing that doesn't mesh with most superhero books, a genre which, for better or worse, usually strives to convince us of its reality. His characters severely lack any significant distinguishing details. McDaniel's style should possess an upside, namely that his swift lines electrify any action sequence he touches. I think there lies a point, though, at which momentum does not make up for sloppiness, and McDaniel's work falls too far on the bad side of that line. One has to imagine he is an incredibly quick artist who consistently hits his deadlines because he keeps getting work. But I just keep on not wanting to look at it. So that was what I said about Scott McDaniel. So that night... I, uh, I'm out with my friends. I went to see, I don't know if any of you guys were in this, the Core Res production of Gastrong. There might be some, yeah, Geiger, you know. So I was at Gastrong with my friends, and I get an email. And the email I get is from, guess who? Scott McDaniel. And here is what Scott McDaniel says to me. The message is titled, Batman and Robin, number 19 review. Scott says, Eric, I just read your review of my work on Batman and Robin number 19. While I absolutely agree that everyone is entitled to their own opinion, I found your summary judgment on my work to be extremely rude. You may personally hate my style and you certainly have that freedom, but that does not give you the authority to dismiss me as a poor artist. I believe that I am among the best action artists currently working. I am one of two or three artists currently working that truly understands curvilinear perspective, in parentheses, five vanishing points. And, you, and utilizes it properly. I am an excellent visual storyteller, and I am completely self-taught. Sure, I have my flaws and areas of weakness, but that is true of every artist. You seem to be unaware of the artistic challenges of this fill-in arc, so I thought I'd share some with you. I do not choose the project I am assigned to. Boring, boring. A good comic book writer can write three to four stories a month. A good comic book artist can only draw one. To return the book to its proper schedule, I was only given three weeks to draw each issue. Paul was late with the script. These are all much longer than I'm reading. Uh, Paul was late with the script. I did everything I could to add energy to it, but it was a lot of talking. It was unsatisfying for me. Um, there is more, but I'll stop here out of professional creativity. So that was, each bullet point was about a, two paragraphs in length, by the way. Um, I certainly don't expect any of this to change your personal opinion about my art. You are entitled to your personal preferences, as am I and everyone else. I merely wanted to defend my competency as a visual storyteller, even if you don't like my unique surface rendering style. More importantly, I hope to have you think again about the words you used in your review. For you, this review may be nothing more than a few minutes of work written with a critical hammer to better entertain your readers, and is here today and gone tomorrow. For me, this review becomes a, ball, a bell that never stops ringing in cyberspace, forever condemning my nearly 180 hours of work. And I think that's what makes it so rude. You have no respect for and are blind to the underlying professionalism of my work. Thank you for your time. Yeah. So when I used to tell this story, I used to rag on Scott a little bit. Um, and I, I, I will say this, uh, the passage I read from Colson, it's about controlling the narrative. You know, Batman can control the narrative because he's not real. But I'm not sure that controlling the narrative is the right thing. That's what Scott tried to do to me. He sent me a missive that was like, I put it into Word just to see. It was about four pages. He wrote me a four-page document to explain why I thought his art was poor. I don't know that that's like the best use of anyone's time as a creative person, right? I feel like, and I'm, by the way, I'm not the only person he did this to. So famously for comic book nerds <laughs> like me, Scott was writing Static Shock, I think, when it relaunched under the New 52. 
And someone wrote a bad review of one of his books, and he wrote them literally dozens of pages explaining why his book was not bad. Why he was just following DC House guidelines, and he was doing everything the editor told him, and that they were wrong to give him a poor judgment. So for someone who has 180 hours to draw a shitty comic, boy, he has a lot of time to write emails, too. Okay, so that's where I agree with Scott. But here's, or that's where I disagree with Scott, but here's where I, the more I think about this, the more I'm like, Fuck, he does have a point, though. Like, why did I feel the need to slam his work so seriously? Like, that's, that's not cool. I I've, I've, have a lot of thoughts about criticism, and I've really turned my back on that world in general, and I feel like, God, that was a shitty thing for me to write, and I do feel bad, and I feel like maybe I've, I hurt people's opinions of him in some un unjust ways because of the shitty words that I wrote. And so I'm going to go back to Chuck for the ending of my story here. He says, Getz talked too much. He tried to own his persona, and that made everything worse, as it always does. This was his fatal flaw. More than the accusations of racism or his unsexy face or his bloodlust uh, blood on the train, people could have gotten over all those things. They would have fabricated their own justifications and excuses. But Americans can't get over the idea of a man who unsuccessfully aspires to be what he is not. In this case, a reasonable man who wasn't overjoyed about finding an opportunity to shoot someone he'd never met. Getz did not understand why people liked him before they knew who he was. He did not realize that the public's positive image of his personality was constructed only because they knew nothing about his true makeup. He decided to let the world see him as more than a one-dimensional character, and that never helps anyone who's already famous. He should have said nothing. He should have said zero about who he was or what he truly believed, just like Bruce Wayne or Charles Bronson. I kind of think, even though he had a point, Scott McDaniel would do better saying zero, but I've kind of come to realize that I would also do better saying zero. Four more shows for me, guys. <laughs> Thank you. That's an amazing book, by the way. For sports fans, there's an awesome chapter where he talks about um, Michael Jordan versus, uh, oh my God, Kobe, and tries to settle that rivalry. I know lots of you will have opinions about that. So we have one more storyteller tonight. This guy, founding member of the Nerdalogs, one of those people who decided this show should exist so long ago, also one of the creators, producers, directors of Batman at Bat. Also one of my best friends, Mr. Chris Geiger. Yeah. I'll do the middle microphone with you, split it up. Oh, yeah. So I, yesterday I completed my second Chicago triathlon. Thank you, thank you. I don't bring it up to humble brag, but your applause does make me feel incredibly cool and attractive. Uh, I also realize I don't quite look like a typical triathlete, but in a way, I have the body of three, three athletes combined. So think about it. So yesterday was that second try, and the week, maybe even month to, uh, uh, I've had leading up to it, has easily been the most uncomfortable uh, that I've had in recent memory. You see, I was riddled with crippling doubt. Uh, leading up to the try, and basically didn't feel good about it until I was in the water and on my way uh, yesterday morning. Now, we all experience doubt, and I bring it up not to say that I'm unique for doubting my own abilities. We all do that too. But I do want to talk about, those, about quelling those voices inside your brain, those insidious worms that tell you that you can't do the things you want to do. And I want to talk about how quelling them is difficult, and how that you should really feel proud of yourself 
when you do, because in reality, it's one of the hardest things to overcome. Telling yourself you can do it. That sounds simple, but you aren't giving yourself enough credit for doing it every day. I mean, whether it's getting out of bed to go to that shitty job or working on that resume to get out of it, you are quieting a voice inside of you that is telling you that you can't do it. When you face that dreaded uncertainty before a first date but build up the courage to go anyway, you're overcoming that voice telling you you can't do it. And when you stand up on a stage, any stage, and talk about your fears, when you go out into the world and for God's sake try to do something new out of your comfort zone, you are telling everyone that you can. Now, I stood on the water's edge two years ago filled with uncertainty. And you see, I had decided to sign up for my first triathlon on a whim. Uh, months after a torturous breakup, I was rediscovering myself. And one day, I was taking a break from that self-discovery to browse Facebook. And that day, I read a post from a friend of mine talking about how he had just completed his first triathlon that day before, and he felt exhilarated. And this was a guy who, at the time, didn't seem like much of a triathlete either, similar to myself. And at that moment, the joy he felt and that passion, it was inspiring. And in that moment, I decided to follow in his footsteps and do the next triathlon myself. Now, I spent the whole year with finishing the triathlon as my goal. I got a bike, I lost weight, I trained regularly, I taught myself how to swim, and then taught myself how to swim again, when how I had taught myself the first time was super wrong. <laughs> and I was focused. And, at the, and as the day came, I became frightened. I got in the water on the day of the race and panic gripped me. It was sucking me down in the water. I was in open water, something I hadn't trained as much for relative to the rest of my training. And on the day I had been thinking about for over a year, for almost a year, I was about to do something I had never done before. And I doubted. I doubted I could do it. I doubted that all the training I had done for a whole year up until that point didn't matter. I doubted that all the passion, all the commitment I had wouldn't be enough. And that doubt carried with me throughout the race. And even when I finished it, I disbelieved that I had. You know, there are many qualities of a good baseball player when it comes to especially being a hitter, but only so many of those qualities can be taught. Mechanics, such as your swing or your stance, how to read a pitch, how to lay off a bad one, how to set up a count in your favor. Those can be coached into any ball player if they have the will or the ears to listen. But one of the most important qualities of any good hitter is their ability to be calm in the batter's box, to understand the moment, but completely disregard it. The ability to be facing the best pitcher in the league and to treat them as if it's the same pitcher they've been hitting against since Little League. Calm is not something you coach. It's something you learn. And, and it's something you learn specifically from challenging that voice inside your brain that says you can't do whatever it is you're about to do and overcoming it. It's really hard to learn. You all know that. And in the days leading up to my second try, I heard the voice again, doubt. It said to me that the panic I experienced in the water in my, my opening minutes of my last try would happen again. It said that even, before I, even though I had completed a triathlon before already and had trained more since uh, for this one, trained smarter, that the differences in my weight 
and the differences in my training would be meaningless. And worse, with my girlfriend and, audience, and, and, girlfriend and parents in, in attendance, it would mean that I would fail with an audience. But this time I came prepared. I remembered what a good hitter would do in a high pressure situation. That hitter would do the exact same thing he would do in any normal situation. And on race day, I brought with me my swim cap from training, the same swim cap I've used in every swim I've been in for two years, with the exception of the races where you have to wear a specific cap. And before I went off to go jump in a lake, I held that cap and thought about all my good swims, all my bad swims, and how far I've come. I went out to do the same thing I knew I could do any day of the week. I told doubt to stuff it. And when I got in the water, baby, I swam the shit out of it. <laughs> Chris Geiger, everybody, give it up. Fucking incredible. That's so cool. Guys, we're about done. Thanks for coming. Thanks for the Beat Kitchen. Thanks, Chicago Podcast Festival. I know some of the performers in the festival. I'm not going to say them, but it's going to be uh, awesome. Uh, so we have one more song for you. This is a podcast that comes out every Monday, by the way. Um, and you can see us around the city, and you can see me do it about four more times. We're going to do a cool handoff in December. It's going to be sweet. Yeah. So this song, this band recorded uh, an album at Wrigley Field. So and they just played at Wrigley Field, I think, last month? Last week. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and also, so this song makes me think of when I was a potbelly troubadour. That was when, during the whole blogging phase of my life. And uh, I can't think of this song without smelling roast beef sandwiches. So, guys, we brought everybody potbelly roast beef sandwiches. We did No, that's it. not true.
love you. We appreciate you. Give it up for everyone who told the story tonight, everyone who took the stage. You're all great. Good luck to James. Good luck to Batman at Bat. We expect success from all of you. This podcast has been produced in association with the Nerdalogs. To find out more about the Nerdalogs and their shows, visit www.nerdalogs.com or facebook.com slash nerdalogs. Thanks for listening.